Welcome to episode 20 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. We might have read her in Metro Magazine or for the website 4.3. She's back from her time watching films in the US. Hi, I'm Eloise Ross. It's Eloise Ross. Welcome back, Eloise. Thank you. How's it's great time? to be here. Really good, really good. But some of the best times I had were listening to you guys do your podcast. <laughs> it's lovely much. It's very kind of you to say so. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so today we'll be reviewing the Brazilian film Aquarius and counting down our top three films about addiction. But first, the films that, that is inspiring this list are my terrible accent. It's T2 Train Spotting. Hello, Mark. So, what you been up to for 20 years? Choose life. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and hope that someone, somewhere cares. Missed you, Mike. I missed you too, Spud. Choose looking up old flames, wishing you'd done it all differently. Do you still take heroin? No. And choose watching history repeat itself. Hello, Franco. Simon. I'm home. Choose your future. Call the police. What shall I say? Just tell them we're dead. Choose reality TV, slut-shaming, revenge porn. Yeah. Choose a zero-hour contract, a two-hour journey to work, and choose the same for your kids, only worse. And smother the pain with an unknown dose of an unknown drug made in somebody's kitchen. And then, take a deep breath. Few films embody the 90s as much as Danny Boyle's 1996 film Trainspotting. And despite the fact that most people would have benefited from subtitles, the story of Renton and his pals Spud, Begbie, Sick Boy, and sometime girlfriend Diane, as invented by author Irvin Welsh and adapted by John Hodge and directed by Danny Boyle, became an exhilarating cultural phenomenon. So returning to these characters, played by the same actors 20 years later, Boyle said that he and, he and the team were compelled to return to explore what has happened now that a generation has passed and to avoid the trappings of a traditional sequel. Like Trainspotting, T2 Trainspotting isn't propelled by the force of its plot or a series of action scenes. Renton returns to Edinburgh after spending 20 years in Amsterdam, ostensibly leaving behind a wife and family, and one by one reconnects with each of his friends and gradually getting drawn in with Johnny Lee Miller's Sick Boy, who has plans to turn the pub he inherited into a sauna to be run by his girlfriend Veronica, played by Angela Nedjalakova. Meanwhile, Robert Carlyle's menacing Begbie is in prison and Ewan Bremner's Spud is still struggling with addiction. Here's a clip in which Renton and Spud reconnect after running to the top of the crags behind Edinburgh. I can't fail again, Mark, you know, I need to detox the system. Oh, Spud detox the system. What does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's not getting it out of your body that's the problem, it's getting it out of your mind. You are an addict. I think I haven't heard that a hundred thousand times, Mark. You got 12 more steps for me, comedy. So, be addicted. Be addicted to something else. Like you're running until I feel sick? Yes. Or something else. You've got to channel it. You've got to control it. People try all sorts. Some people do boxing. Boxing? Well, it's just an example. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean you should... So what did you channel into? Getting away. Eloise, did you enjoy returning to visit the gang from Trainspotting? Yes, I did. I love this film. I was into it right from the get-go. I just want to say maybe as a qualifier, at first I thought that there was a few too many like soft edges in some of the shots and like it was trying to affect too much of like a maybe a dreamy style. Um, but in terms of its rhythm, its beat, the way it used music in, in comparison, like in sort of... Um, 
in line with the images. I thought it was really great. I was laughing out loud. I went to see this by myself and I was laughing out loud, which very rarely happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me wish that I had seen the the original more recently. I don't think I've seen it for about 15 years. Um, and basically I thought it was just really well done, really great plot, you know, like very little plot, basically just re-meeting of the characters um, and a good feeling and that's all you need to do with a, a remake, you know, not, mm-hmm. try and, not try and one-up the original in any way at all. Um, yeah. Mm, okay. Anders? Yeah, I would totally agree with that assessment. I haven't seen the first film. Um, <gasps> I know. Uh, and so I went into it sort of blind, not really knowing what to... I, I don't really know anything about this beyond the fact that it's a cultural, <laughs> pop cultural touchstone for a lot of people. Um, and yeah, I really... It kind of floored me in a way. I got out of the film and I was like, whoa, that was like... Bam, that was like some big punch, I guess. Yeah, it's got this real sort of propulsive energy to it. You're right, the sort of plot sort of comes and goes. And it's sort of looking at looking at how small towns and like addiction and things, you know, they never really go away. All that kind of stuff like still clings on to you 20 years later. I really, really connected with the themes and everything that was happening in this. I thought the acting was amazing too. Loved Robert Carlyle. So great to see him in a thing again. <laughs> Nothing but positive things to say. And I think it remixed the original in very interesting ways as well. Um, but we can talk about that a bit more, I think, mm. uh, later. Andy, what did you think? Yeah, well, I was a huge fan of the original, yep. and um, it was very, I kind of saw it at the right time, I suppose. So, in a way, I don't feel like I've grown up with them so much because I haven't read the books. But I did live in Edinburgh for a few years, and it was kind of weird being there. And, and every everybody, every Australian who came to visit me was like, oh, can you show me where you know, the beginning of train spotting? Because there's a fam- the famous scene of the opening credits where they're running down Princess Street, and then um, Renton falls across the bottom of the car smiling. I know for a lot of other people, it's also infused their youth as well. So, yeah, I, I really, really um, appreciated the way that Boyle wasn't trying to remake it. He wasn't doing the traditional um, sequel. But um, at the time, there was a lot of accusations that there was a lot of style, like Tarantino, a lot of style over substance. I remember that. Whether or not I believed them or not, that was just part of the reading that was going on about the film at the time. Mm. Yeah, but seeing it now... I think that's totally fine. The style is is what got me, and I was just I thought it was so so well done in every mm. respect. That, that that's not a problem for me at this stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I thought there was enough um, material there for for him. And this time it wasn't so much of the blinding colours and the rapid fire editing and the crazy camera angles and that sort of stuff. There was some of that as well, but I noticed the palette was a lot more muted. There was a lot of darkness, a lot of empty corners of frames. Yeah, um, yeah, And not yeah. quite so much tactility because there was so much movement in the first one. It was always people running, falling, jumping, shooting up or collapsing. Or even when they were lying still, they were often, the cra- this crazy stuff was happening around them all the time. Yeah, so right. it, was, it was almost like he was afraid of standing still. Yeah. But in this one, there was a lot more confidence, I suppose, that comes from having 20 years more experience. Yeah, and I was reading about it because I was kind of thinking, you know, where did this come from? The 20 years later, is this exactly, you know, is this an exact kind of adaptation from the novels? And no, I mean, Danny Boyle has been thinking about doing this since 2009 or even earlier so you know obviously he's had a lot of time to try and figure out what this is going to be and he's just settled on it being you know actually 20 years later which i think was a really good way to take it Mm. um because 20 years is enough time that you can sort of do something fresh and what i really loved as well is the chemistry that remained between all of the characters especially Simon and Mark Renton, mm. they they still had this great rapport. I loved the, the night when they get really 
I think they probably get really drunk. I don't think they take drugs because Mark's clean now, but they they get really drunk with Veronica and she's Russian, I think. Yes. <laughs> and Mark is like being stupid and says placebo instead of, I think yes. what he's trying to say is spaceba, <laughs> but like not even spaceba is not even, he's just cheesing a drink and he just got it completely wrong. And That's I thought right. that was so hilarious and just joyous. Mm, I was yeah. just so happy at that moment. And I thought it was, yeah, so many moments like that were, were really fun. Um, and I, but I do also really like this film for the way that it was not just like, you know, a big barrel of laughs and a good time, but it addressed you know, kind of textually addressed the fact that it was engaging in its own form of nostalgia in this culture that is currently, as we've discussed in the mm, past, in exactly with Star Wars and also yep. already today before we started recording, you know, this culture that is so obsessed with nostalgia. Yeah. Um, and they, they do, they, you know, they bring that up. Characters sort of say, you know, I think Simon says, Mark, why are you here? You, are you just trying to um, you know, hang on to something. This is this is you engaging in yeah, nostalgic yeah. You're, practice. You're mm-hmm. a tourist in your own youth, I think, is what one of them says. Yes. Right? Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. And, so, and I think, yeah, I totally agree. And that's what I really found interesting about this because it channels all of those cultural conditions into, like, a, an exploration of this character. And so it becomes, like, this is this guy who... He he's tried to escape this, you know, his past, his the the cycle of addiction and everything, and he's got this very precarious middle class existence over in Amsterdam, I think it is. Yeah. And he sort of says at one point, you know, the writing's on the wall. My company's about to merge with another company. I'm going to be out of job in a few years. What what the hell am I doing? Kind of thing. So it's I just thought particular and the final scene I won't talk about, but the final scene I just thought totally encapsulated that theme so perfectly and so like stylishly and it was just it was awesome Mm. really really cool interesting filmmaking i thought Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 Yeah, I was really impressed with the way that um, Spud's character actually almost became more important than yeah. Renton's throughout it because he had a really interesting journey given that, you know, he was kind of the weakest or the most vulnerable to addiction and he was, you know, struggling with it possibly more than anyone else towards in, in the first film and again in this one it's in the clip that we heard where they're running up the hill and talking about, you know, getting into boxing or replacing your addiction mm. with something else. Yeah, it was really, it's kind of interesting the way that, you know, he responds cynically, but then it ends up becoming much more you know, important and more moving, I thought, as well. Because mm. he's I, such a great actor. You know, I also that. loved Spud's collection of shirts that he wore throughout the film to, like, <laughs> a, a, you know, kind of appear... Um, more together mm. than he was. <laughs> yeah. That was very nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice touch. What What did you guys make of the up... I was assuming it's an updated version of the Choose Life monologue. Is there a similar mm. monologue in the original? There is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. What did you think of the... Uh, mm, that's a weird one because, I mean, it is good. It's kind of, you know, funny and it does bring back a bit of that energy that they yeah. had. I've written my notes and so I wrote down Choose Life and then mm. the only one... Because, you know, he goes, he's at such a fast-paced monologue mm. and he has so many, so many suggestions. The only thing I wrote down was Choose Unfulfilled Promise. Yeah. That really, obviously, that really, you know, kind of was very powerful to me that that part of the of the monologue, um, mm. since it was the only bit that I wrote down, and I think it also is, you know, super relevant when you think about the original and you think about, you know, what's happening in this present iteration of the film in terms of Mark's, you know, unknown future and, mm. and everyone's, and you know, of course, it's poignant. Yeah, well, what I thought was interesting because even with writing the introduction for this, I was going to, you know, I was going to say Renton and his friends, but at no point does it really feel like he 
is close friends with Begby or he f- is, does it feel like anything more than circumstantial apart from his relationship with Spud, which is much more friend-based? And in the mm. first film, there was a lot more pop culture bonding you know, about James Bond or about you know shooting dogs in their ass with air rifles in parks and stuff like that and just kind of creating um, mayhem. So with this time, it felt a lot more fragile. It was a lot, felt like there was a lot more estate because you felt like how alone they were and how alone a lot of yeah. guys who... It's were, really interesting that you say that because maybe it's true that, you know, in your early 20s, you do bond over pop culture, but pop culture references, they expire and they maybe they expire within friendships, but they certainly expire in, you know, cultural forms. And so obviously James Bond is still around, so we can <laughs> still kind of access that mm. power. Mm. But but those sorts of things we'll, we will move on from. And it, it is, you know, the more kind of core elements of friendship or at least companionship yeah. that, are, that, yeah. what, that are what stick. Yeah. And it did, uh, I mean, there was that interesting scene where they're talking about the soccer players. And I felt I got that sort of sense that, and then they were suddenly in very engaged in a very deep, like, I mean, drunken, but deep, passionate conversation about, like, these soccer players from, what, the early 90s. Yes. Um, and it, it kind of felt like that. It was kind of like they, I mean, I know pe- people I know who I was friends with at a specific point of time. When you catch up with them, you're always talking about these same sort of <laughs> epochal, same, mm, same sort yeah, of yeah. things from that time period. It felt like he captured that sensation really, really well. I yeah, thought. definitely, yeah. And then because the entire film is about lies and betrayal, and, and you know, and mistreating friends and and, yeah. and turning your back on those those sorts of people. But at the same time, like everybody recognizes that that's a weakness in themselves, and probably each of them would have done the same thing. But the fact that Renton did do that. And he has to therefore pay the price. Um, I want to mention I'm really glad that Kelly McDonald showed up because I was worried yeah. for quite a while. She doesn't show up until, you know, maybe midway through or a bit bit later. Um, and I was worried that she wasn't because, you know, with all of these remakes, you get the same men, but you get a replacement of the, the female character. And I was mm. like, oh, my God, there's a there's a young character here. Is this what it's going to be? And obviously the, the track of the the four guys was was separate from the mm. Kelly McDonald character in the original story. But still, I love her a lot. And I really... And then she showed up and I was really happy. And I also thought it was really clever because she is a lawyer now and she's trying to assist Mark with a case of, you know, extortion. And I thought that was really clever because um, her character as Diane was like blackmailing Mark in the first one or something. And so that was really cool that she, you know, that they kind of (laughs) um, had developed from that point and they gave each other a lot of knowing glances. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping for more of her. I was, I was hoping for more of her as well. And she does return at a slightly later point, just in kind of Mark's, I think, nostalgic desire for his, for his youth or for some stability, some imaginary stability. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you could always have more of Kelly McDonald, but I'm very (laughs) glad that she showed up um, Mm. anyway. Yeah. yeah, and I also want to do a shout out to these. I don't know, like this globalized con- conformist vision of Edinburgh that's sort of laying in the background of this movie. So, like, they do their drug deals, uh, or they, you know, talk about their their sort of underworld activities in this like really funky bar, which has like download our app written like behind behind <laughs> the sequences. And like, he has his like almost it's almost like a heart attack. Not quite. He says it's kind of like a heart attack um, at the start, which starts the movie in like this very generic gym gymnasium and like there's that scene where they get off the airport and there's like those two girls saying welcome to edinburgh and they're like eastern european (laughs) so it's just this funny little tracing of of where where sort of middle class life is now in the sort of background dotted Mm. in the background yeah and that that brief comment when when mark and simon go to the dancing hall to to rob a bunch of people they say yeah mark (laughs) says or maybe simon says i can't recall it doesn't really matter you know this is the type of people it's okay the 
you know, they're different than us. They were abandoned by the political class, but at least they have an identity. So it's okay that we're robbing them Yeah, in a way, you know, there is that kind of brief, but yeah, you're right. There are these kind of allusions or direct references to, to the way that Edinburgh has changed in its landscape. Yeah. It's just, it's really interesting. Really dense film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things I was slightly disappointed by was the music because the first time around, it was so iconic and it was so brilliant. And the integration of like of rock music that was in heavily influenced by drugs, you know, with Lou Reed and um, and Iggy Pop, and then there was the the, the rock and roll from the nineties, and then the electronic future stuff, futuristic stuff with Underworld and um, and Brian Eno and that sort of thing. Whereas this time around, we basically got little hints of those songs, but then we got a whole bunch of songs by the Young Fathers, who are a good band and had some and there was some some of it was well used. Yeah. But I was really hoping for some uh, something similar to be able to you know feel like where where we are in 2017 yeah yeah yeah. given that that's what the film was about was there where where they are now as well as their relationship to the past yeah i don't know about that i thought the music was really great you know it didn't stun me but i did enjoy it i felt like obviously you know the rhythm and the editing using the music mm-hmm. was really powerful i do i you know it's interesting that you bring it up i do want to mention maybe you guys you know had a similar kind of elated feeling when um they're all at the club dancing and they all kind of do they sing along i can't recall yeah and they mm. clap to, okay. radio, to radio, radio gaga yes yeah radio gaga and then they all like clap yeah, yeah. i mean yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. everyone yeah. loves that song and it's so yeah. easy to get to get really excited about it it's so it seems so iconic yes i mean it's iconic in itself not just in relation to spotting. yeah I love that scene too and I love to have Robert Carlyle's character who's sort of in the middle of this club and like all these people sort of they clap and they like go down low sort of yeah. en masse and uh-huh. he's just sort of and looking he's like, around and sort of like what the, the hell is going on <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's awesome I love this movie well that's um, T2 Trainspotting and that's yep. out now in wide release oh she Trago em meu corpo as marcas do meu tempo A fossa, a fome, a flor, o fim do mundo So from one definitive Queen song to another, we're introduced to the musical scene of Aquarius and to the character of Clara with Another One Bites the Dust which Clara and a group of friends rock out to on cassette tape in their crowded car by the water in Recife, Brazil. The scene is 1980 and the film begins with a celebration for the life of 70-year-old Lucia, Clara's aunt. From here, the film establishes itself as one that is determined to build up rich profiles of women. Then it skips ahead an indeterminate number of years, likely to the present day, to an older Clara played by the incomparable Sonia Braga and follows her fight with a building developer who wants to acquire her apartment and tear the whole building down. It's a film that explores the strength of home, of memories and of family and builds the profiles of the greedy and dishonest development firm, not with sensationalism, but not without judgment, simply observing their operation as lacking sensitivity. Written and directed by Kleber Mendoza Filho, who made the stunning Neighbouring Sounds in 2012, this film has received a lot of praise and also been a subject of controversy. 
as it was not put forward by Brazil as the Brazilian entry in the Best Foreign Film category at the Academy Awards for dubious political reasons. But still, it won audience awards at the Sydney Film Festival and was a favourite at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Anders, do you support the praise for this film? I do support it. I really, I liked it and it really sort of grew on me the more I watched it. I would say seeing it directly after T2 train spotting made for <laughs> quite an intense sort of comparative study in the passage of time because they're both sort of dealing with that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a wonderful portrait of how time space, physical space, and, like, personhood all sort of nudge up against each other. I thought Sonia Braga, who was in almost every scene after the prologue, it's stunning, as Donna Clara's woman who's stubbornly refusing to sell her apartment uh, to developers. I just really would love to focus on the prologue because I really, really dug that. So it starts, yeah, in 1980, and this car load of people down by the beach blasting out of one bites the dust. And then the film sort of goes up to this buzzing low-rise apartment building opposite, and it's his birthday party. So already he's got this idea of time passing and, like, the, the sadness or the emotion, I guess, of these sort of big emotional moments that we have in our lives and how they sort of ricochet. The movie's central thematic preoccupation is best summed up by this shot we get in the prologue of that chest of drawers. It's Mm -hmm. like we come back to the chest of drawers through the whole film and um, basically we see this chest of drawers in the corner of this apartment building and we flash back through the memory of the auntie whose birthday it is to see that she had this sort of passionate night with her lover uh, in and around the chest of drawers. Um, And then we cut back to the birthday party and we sort of see her wistfully looking at them and I think that's really that's what this film's all about this you know how our memory and personhood and furniture all sort of intersect to create home and how that stuff is maybe increasingly fragile in uh, a sort of hyper development kind of age which we live in so I mean it's it's got a film with very interesting politics which I'd like to explore a bit more but um, what did you think Andy? Well yeah I totally agree and I, with what you were saying about the passage of time and I think for, for Clara's character who I think is one of the most compellingly interesting characters I've seen in years in the film um, just the complexity of her how frustrating yeah, she, she is, is. Yeah. but then how powerful and how she just completely she would say things like you know I have a feeling you're about to help me things like that <laughs> just it just dominates pretty much every situation she's in but yeah like you were saying with the passage of time for her it's really specific because she's a music journalist and so music for her like at one point she picks up an album and says this is a message in a bottle and then she'll explain yeah. the backstory mm-hmm. of yep, yep. how that spans time for her specifically and then there's the article that these journalists come of course she totally dominates the interview when these people come to interview her and the you know and they talk to her they just want to know purely about how she feels about mp3s mm. how music is shared now well it's, it's funny how she dominates that conversation and yet the headline is still i support mp3s <laughs> or whatever so it, it yeah. which is speaks to the broader point of like is it futile it, yeah it's interesting you know because obviously we are supposed to side with her and Although, as I said in my introduction, and whether or not this you agree with me or not, you know, I feel like it's a non-partisan film in that way. It just represents things as they are. And so, you know, these music journalists that say she loves MP3s and the building developer, their image is not manipulated in, in any way. They're just doing what they're doing and we, we see them for what they are. But I feel like there is this distinct difficulty set up in society, both in terms of that really interesting moment where she says, yeah, this record is a, me- a message in a bottle. And the person interviewing her says, 
so you don't have a problem with digital. Yeah. You know, that is, yeah. the, that is the direct response to that line message in a bottle, which is beautiful and poetic and meaningful. And then the response is like yeah. completely like mm. stripped of, of yeah. anything. Yeah. 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 And that I also, what I'd written down is the the first scene where the building developer Diego tries to get her, you know, to agree to sell her apartment again. And she says, no, I, it's not for sale. And he says, we're going to call it the new Aquarius. Uh, Clara kind of is taken aback because the building at the present time is called Aquarius and she feels like that's going to be an insult or something. He says, by doing this, we're preserving the memory of the building that used to exist. And to him, that's, I mean, it's PR speak, but that's what he is thinking that he's doing. And he thinks that he's selling the truth by using that line. But for, for Clara... I mean, the memory of the building is the space, it's it's her history, it's where she grew up, where she raised her children, it's where her Aunt Lucia raised her children as well, you know, so that there's kind of this discrepancy that is possibly never going to actually be solved mm. between two opinions of, of what is preserving memory. Um, and maybe this modern music journalist thinks that preserving memory is equivalent to preserving music on an mp3 mm, yeah you know in the same way that that he thinks preserving memory is the, the same as just you, you know slapping the same name on a building yeah yeah exactly yeah. um and so i feel like it's a really difficult film in in that way because those kind of issues um are never you know never going to be worked through yeah absolutely and i think that's where this film um stumbles as well for me i it felt like part, about halfway through the pace really flagged there was a lot of photos being passed around. So obviously Phil Hill wanted to express the importance of family and how Clara related to her relatives because it is, you know, as with all families, it was very complex. And I think he did a good job of representing that. But it really... Um, because what I loved was that there was no sustained tension or underlying threat or anything. There was just yeah. a lot of beautiful story that just kind of moved along really freely, really naturally, particularly when you had scenes of um, Clara out with her friends, which I just love the energy of that, of those women sitting around and dancing and... Just the, 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 yeah, that was the, a fabulous scene. Yeah, the yeah. vitality in that scene was just yeah. glorious. It was like it was like something from a Danny Boyle film. Just this overlapping conversations. This the camera's kind of like you know just following where the conversation's going rather than forcing you know a sort of you know pace to it. Or there was like you know there was it was a really supremely confident move I thought on the part of, of the part of Philo, and I thought it really paid off well. But then about halfway through, I think he kind of lose the he loses that a little bit, and then when he brings it back to the what's happening with the apartment and this ongoing kind of story, then that's when it really picked up again. And then the last third, I think, is wonderful. And I think um, Braga herself was, should have been um, up there with Huppert, with the best actress. I thought she was absolutely incredible in this. When it was announced that, that Brazil had not put the film forward as their entry for the category, I think there was a little bit of a um, petition to kind of have Sonia Braga entered as a best actress possibility or, you know, to have a campaign put mm, behind her. Yeah. But obviously that didn't take. But I was quite excited about it too. You're, obvi- you're, you're right. You're obviously meant to side with this woman, I think, but he, he doesn't make it uh, uniformly easy for you to, mm. I guess is what I'm saying. So um, I'm just thinking, you know, why does she have the right to this story and this stuff in a way that her housekeeper does not? Yeah. And, and actually characters specifically sort of say this, I think, at one point in dialogue. They say, you know, your ability to live in this house is, you know, on the backs of these um, people. So all that kind of stuff I find I found really interesting and, and I could have done with more of that, mm. I guess. Yeah, because yeah, I've read some people seeing her apartment as a microcosm of Brazil. As yeah. like, and it's interesting that this film has now taken all these political ramifications, yeah, yeah. which were maybe much, much smaller in the original when it was originally being made. 
Yeah, I um, was reading the New York Times article about the film being too political for the Oscars that you sent that you sent us, Andy, um, and I wrote down this quote. This is a section from the article quoting um, Mendoza Filho, who he says, "In an in an intense way, all the retaliation against Aquarius is backfiring." He compared the passions around Aquarius to those involving Network, the 1976 film about broadcast news in the era of Watergate, in which an anchor persuades his viewers to shout out their windows, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. You know, it's kind of true. Maybe, you know, the the kind of controversy around the film is is bringing more weight to, to what the film is, is saying itself. Um, and, I mean, I think it is could be construed as being a very political film. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, anything that is about protecting the past for, you know, the unknown of the future, everything about that is political. Yeah, I thought it was really, really cool. I really like Diego, actually, as a character. I've, I, there, was, there was one key confrontation between the two of them in a parking lot mm. that's quite key, and I was totally on his side. I thought she was being completely unreasonable. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I was, like, doubting myself, going, I yeah. think, is this filler wanting us to do this? Because it seems... Well, I mean, that's a good thing yeah. that, that mm. that's the case because it's not just black and white and she is, you know, Clara is a real person mm. oh she's yeah she she's really complex yeah, yeah. And yeah i feel I like mm. you know if which compl- then complicates the broader thematic exploration that yeah the and you yeah. know this is a longish film it's two and a half hours yeah, yeah. um both of you kind of sense that it lagged a bit i mean i loved it the whole way through i didn't feel that at all but i feel like you couldn't paint a portrait of a character with so many kind of layers without having a film that was this long so so that you know is kind of really key here so I think we're giving thumbs up to Aquarius. Totally. Yeah. I am, yeah. And it's definitely worth seeing in a cinema. Yeah, and we haven't even mentioned the colour or the mise-en-scene and the production design, which is so, it so is. strong, yeah. especially in the first first part in the mm. prologue. In the pro- oh, I love that prologue. I kept on thinking of it throughout the whole film. It always stayed there as like my mm. comparison for every moment that came after. I kept on thinking of it in terms of 1980, which, mm. yeah. It was, That's so good. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now to the Cultural Capital Film Diary. So cinephiles have absolutely no reason to see Sunlight at all over the next few weeks. If you're in Melbourne, you can catch the Orléans Francais French Film Festival, which runs from March 8th to the 30th, with opening night film The Odyssey Street screening at the Astor. Um, Other highlights include The Dancer, The Unknown Girl, and Tomorrow, all of which have got really good reviews, and I can definitely uh, say The Dancer is worth seeing. The Transitions Film Festival showcases documentaries that explore the cutting-edge ideas and global challenges and that it would bound to trigger thought-provoking conversations. That runs at Cinema Nova until March 3rd. And the Melbourne Women in Film Festival spotlights the often obscured cinematic achievements of women in Australian film, and that runs over the weekend of March 3rd and 4th at the Treasury Theatre, and opens with the screening of the 1929 film The Cheaters, which I'm sure I'm not alone in having never heard of before. Yeah, cool, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, that looks really great. See you at opening night. <laughs> yeah, that's screening on 16mm as well, so that should be oh, cool. exciting. Wow. Yeah. Um, and elsewhere, Acme is running a season of fashion on film, and, and as well as showcasing the work of Asghar Fahadi, 
And Melbourne Cinematheque yeah. as well is coming up with a three-week season profiling the work of Isabel Huppert. High time. High time for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the um, newly Oscar-winning Isabel Huppert, perhaps, perhaps maybe. depending on how Yes, we are, we are recording this the day before and this will be That's out right. the day of. So, so let's all wait and see. But. Did you know her son runs a cinema in Paris? Yes, and I've been to that cinema. Ah, but cool. I don't. I think that I don't think that she had bought it at the time I was right, there. Right, right, right. Um, but I remember I saw. I think I saw Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and it was a horrific print. It was so faded and, and disgusting <laughs> and kind of yellowy, but it was so good to see in this tiny little space. I saw a noir starring Claire Trevor. I can't remember the name. It was something. Anyway, they, they even prior to Isabel Huppert buying it, they, um, they had great programming. So. Awesome. Mm, yeah, wow. cool. Yeah, so that's um, all going on. And uh, if you decide you don't want to leave the house to see films, um, Mubi can provide you with a whole bunch of options. Anders, was there something in the current slate of movies offerings that caught your attention? Yes, definitely. Lav Diaz's An Investigation on the Night That Won't Forget. Um, Diaz is a sort of a divisive figure in contemporary film festival circuit um, associated with the slow cinema movement. And I've never actually seen any of his films. So this looks really interesting, actually. Um, It's a 70-minute interview with the editor and journalist Erwin Romulo. And Romulo was the best friend of the late film critic Alexis Tiaseco. He was um, a sort of notable Filipino film critic who was murdered in, a, I think, a burglary, a home invasion. And so this is just an interview about... Um, him in the Philippines. Life. Yes. Was that when he and his wife were both murdered? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I read about that. Yeah. So this is just a um, an hour long interview with this journalist and editor who I think was his best friend and knew him quite well. Mm, sounds like an unusually pithy film for Diaz. Yes. Yes. There's no one for long screen times. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm keen to see uh, Le Petit Amour, Kung Fu Master. Agnes Varda's film from 1988. Now, I have seen this, but, like, not for a very long time. So I am very keen to see it again. It's only got a few days left on movie, but it's definitely worth a watch. Anything by Agnes Varda, I will just tell you to watch all the time. So this (laughs) stars Charlotte Gainsbourg and Agnes Varda and Jacques Demy's son, Mathieu Demy. It's about a woman who falls in love with a young boy a classmate of her daughter and it's just this exploration of feeling and identity and and what it you know kind of what it means to fall in love that's a really nice film cool um um, at the moment movie are running a series of seasons one of which is the many sins of valerian borochik um borochik was a czech animator who like a lot of people in the 50s and 60s in europe uh made art with a very humanitarian outlook and movie is showing a series of his short films which i caught a couple of um, there's Astronauts, which he co-directed with Chris Marker, is a satirical piece about a man building a rocket out of newspaper and flying into space where he sends back messages about his travels. And it reminded me a lot of Terry Gilliam's animations for the Monty Python, and, uh, and Gilliam has singled this guy out as being a really key influence, and you can see them. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because it has a really strange Dadaist sort of approach to symbolism and a really bananas industrial score with all these like weird noises that just sound like somebody <laughs> mucking around at home wow. hitting things and but then they're deployed in this really with this really affecting way. So the Les Astronauts is kind of funny, but then he's mostly known for another film that may be a screening called The Game of Angels, which explores the mind of someone in a concentration camp. 
Um, and it's not really the events or people. You just It's just the atmosphere. It's purely the way he goes about creating this really kind of stifling atmosphere with these browns and blacks and greys. And oh, that's so great. That because sounds really interesting. It is. You know, it's fascinating, we screened yeah. a bunch of Borovchek shorts at Cinematech last year um, as, you know, a program, but I was interstate at the time. But Game of Angels, I heard, was just like this incredible film. So yeah, it's only 15 I'm going to check long. it out. Um, yeah. Los Astronauts, I think, is about 12. Yeah, so it's, it's amazing the power that he oh, has. Wow with just such a short space of time. You can also see his influence on early David Lynch animations as well, with mm-hmm. this kind of strange, really, really, obviously spent like a lot of, put a lot of work into these really short films. And they're both um, up on movie for the next three weeks. Great. So if you, our listeners, are excited about what we just talked about and you want to check out any of these films, thanks to Mubi, you can... Sign up for a one month free um, going by going to mubi.com slash cultural capital. That's M-U-B-I.com slash cultural capital. And if you sign up through that link, you should get um, a month free to trial Mubi. Hurry, quick. Oh, I want to get to sleep. Please, please. Beginning to wear off quick for you, ain't it? You're graduating, student. You're gonna have to step it up. Anything. But please, hurry. All right. Let's see your money. Later, later. Right now. Trust me this once, will you? You know I don't do that. I'll pay you twice as much later, but I gotta do something right now. Beat it. I'll even push for you, Louie, hurry. A flippin' junkie always says Please, Louie, please. Please, move it, your dirty hands off. So to close out today, we're going to look at our top three films about addiction. And when you were looking at films about addiction, what were you looking for? Well, I sort of realised this is a huge gap in my cinematic knowledge. And so I've come up with three films about addiction that I can think of, because that's literally about the the limited films that I've seen that I could think of. You know, I spend quite a bit of time trying to think of it. Yeah, films that maybe explore addiction or have main characters who are maybe so it's either their chief thematic concern or they're in the background of at least a few of the characters Mm, i guess is what i was thinking about but my number three is it's quite a controversial film and i have wildly varying ideas about this film every day that i think about it um which is not every day uh enter the void gasper (laughs) noe's film so it's less about addiction than a film set in the world of addiction and it's sort of a repulsive violent loud bombastic assault on the senses the opening credits hammer into you and it doesn't let off until the final credits have rolled Mm. uh the first time i saw it i loved it the second time i saw it i felt repulsed by it so yeah yeah. it is a fact yeah a really amazing choice that's yeah intriguing because it is thc i think is the drug that they're taking in that film that yeah, gives them all those hallucinations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, good choice. Um, Eloise, Eloise. Did, you, did you have like a, a framework in which you were working? Not really. Just thinking about films in which characters are addicted to, you know, drugs or addicted to something or... I mean, one of my choices is maybe not about addiction so much as just about what happens to the mind when it kind of gets in that groove of being addicted or of just not, yeah. not being able to stop doing something. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, mm. I mean, there are a whole, I mean, cause I kind of wanted yeah. to go out into some sort of interesting thoughts and thinking about how th- we can approach this, you know, but there are so many interesting aesthetic ways that cinema can represent all those kinds of, you know, manic obsession mm. with things yeah. that, totally. that 
that is kind of, yeah, where I wanted to, to look at. So my first one is, I mean, you could look at me and you could talk to me for five seconds and you would know that this is going to be my top three. Um, <laughs> the Man with the Golden Arm, Otto Preminger's film from mm. 1955, mm. based on a book written by Nelson Algren. I think in 1949 or 1950, early 50s, he wrote it. This film is incredible, basically. It's very famous. It's got a great score. Um, it's about a guy who, played by Frank Sinatra, who's a jazz drummer, and he has a heroin addiction. Otto Preminger kind of spurned this a lot and paid no, paid no attention to, to the um, censors, but there was censorship involved because it was 1955. But the way that, that kind of his addiction is, is in communicated and that his burning desire to just keep taking heroin and the way that it interferes with his life. And there's this incredible scene where he, you know, he really wants to get this job as a drummer. And so he's auditioning. But as much as he really, really wants to get this job, he also really, really cannot help but take some more heroin. And so he fucks it up because mm. there he you know that's i assume what what the life of an addict is like so this film does mm. you know communicates mm. that really well and then there's a scene of cold turkey and it's just so engaging mm. frank sinatra is incredible um and you know you don't you think of him as you know this soft crooner but he has some of the most powerful performances during the 1950s i think um he's an incredible dramatic actor mm. so cool excellent choice um, so when I was looking at this, I was thinking of how difficult it is to be able to put the viewer in the mindset of an addict and how often bad, there's so many bad films about addiction, particularly in Australian cinema. I think there's, been, there's a lot of examples I could think of which are just repulsive people acting reprehensibly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I really struggle to empathise. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of this depends on how on your own personal history and whether you have, you know, people with addiction or if you've had addictive experiences yourself. So. If somebody can like make a character not only sympathetic in their struggle with addiction, but also take you on some sort of redemptive journey, even if it doesn't, if, if even if it isn't ultimately one of, of overcoming the addiction, I think if they can make it um, you know watchable and put you in their shoes, then I think they're they're really. That's a really good point. It's yeah. a yeah, it's a really difficult thing to do well. Um, and my number three uh, is a film called Christian F. from nineteen eighty one mm-hmm. by this German guy um, Uli Edel. Uh, this pretty much single-handedly, much in the way you were saying with The Man with the Golden Arm, kind of changed the way people talked about it or the way made, they made films about it. This is like the first film to really take you on a journey of somebody and make it just really ugly, gritty, difficult film. So in this uh, is a really powerful and tough film that features Na- uh, Nadja Bronkhurst, who plays Chris- uh, Christiane, who's a 14-year-old girl from a middle-class family in West Berlin, um, who's obsessed with this nightclub, local nightclub called The Sound, and she sneaks out, she goes there and meets a boy called Detlef, and she quickly escalates from smoking weed and going to a David Bowie concert, featuring actual David Bowie, to a fully-fledged heroin addiction quite before her 15th birthday. And so I think after this, there were a lot of fast-paced films about first-hand accounts of addiction, and they were really focused on the, the power of realism. So Adele gets um, a lot of shots which would be impossible to film today. There's a lot of real-life junkies next hanging out with these 14-year-old actors, 15-year-old actors, um, teenage sex workers, whole swathes of West Berlin look like Detroit today, like these absolutely just abandoned war zones mm. with... Because um, I think before Christiane F, a lot of heroin addicts were either seen as being jazz fans in the 1950s or characters from Lou Reed songs, whereas suddenly from this point on, um, harm reduction techniques started coming in. People started talking a lot about you know middle-class kids who looked normal becoming heroin addicts. And so I nearly went for Sid and Nancy, which was another film that also um, yeah. does yeah. a sort of gritty thing really, really well. Yeah. But... Um, 
just Adele's realism I thought was was so great. Uh, Bowie turning up and having and scoring the film was really really great as well. And um, Bronco's performance is incredible. Um, she's a nineteen year old playing a fourteen year old, and yeah, she's really really compelling. Cool. I'll number three. check it out. That sounds interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. My number two is Rachel getting married. Oh. Now, I've exalted Jonathan Demme's praises on this podcast before. I just think he's so good. And he's, again, I'm very happy to do so here. Um, he's really good at screenwriting craft, I think. He's one of those sort of American filmmakers who's really great at revealing things through dialogue and through getting a bunch of characters together in one space and having them interact. So basically, Anne Hathaway plays Kim, this woman who is let out of drug rehab to attend her sister's wedding, and the film just sort of follows um, the family's interactions, I guess, as they sort of deal with her presence at this uh, family uh, moment. Um, Yeah, really, really great film, really well made. He's very good at bringing families together. And interestingly, I would like to note that Hathaway plays an alcoholic in the very bizarre-looking upcoming film Colossal, wherein she drunkenly stumbles through... Every time she drunkenly stumbles through a children's playground, she accidentally unleashes a giant monster in South Korea. I think that's the premise of the film. Uh, anyway, it's out later this year, so we'll all get to go and see. Oh, God, I'm looking forward to reading that. Take that. on addiction. That's the first I've heard of that film. Yeah. It got, uh, you know, it kind of got a lot of attention at Sundance. Oh, oh really? It sounds like, it sounds very much like Sundance bait, mm, I've got mm. to say, but mm. I'm keen for it. Uh, Eloise, your number two. Uh, my number two is a film that, you know, if we think about classifying films, there are certain films that you would classify as only addiction films, whereas this is maybe slightly different, but just in terms of how I was thinking about, you know, addiction, this this fits into it. So I really like the 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, directed by Ruben Mamoulian, starring Frederick March, and his performance... It was very well received, I think, his performance um, as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anyway, I believe it fits into this category because he's addicted to this formula and so he can't stop taking it and then eventually he becomes, a, you know, a little monster. I mean, we all know this story, mm. so I don't need to explain it. But it was it's just this really incredible, classified as a horror film. Mormoulian um, was making a few horror films at this time. Um, and the the reason why I think that it's so incredible is because it has this very groundbreaking editing technique where in 1931 it actually looks like Frederick March's face is changing like in real time mm, right. um, I mean it's not obviously but but there were no special effects as far as I'm aware it was just it was just all you know kind of a camera trick um, and it's it's really incredible. It also has Miriam Hopkins in it. She plays the bar singer Ivy Pearson. It was quite risky at the time because of the content of the horror and the like kind of powerful effect of of Frederick March's transformation and of his aggression. I think there was also, I mean, it was pre-code, so there was also a lot of, you know, kind of sexual implications in here. But it's a really great film. If you can get a handle on it, then then I really recommend it. Cool. Yeah, it sounds it's really intriguing. I love you, the way you bring me these totally left field choices from <laughs> from decades ago. Okay, good. I'm glad you do because I feel like I'm being a bit naughty sometimes. So my number two uh, looks at addiction not from a personal perspective, but from a social and economic one. Um, Stephen Soderbergh's Traffic explores the industry around the drug industry and the narcotic addiction and the emo- emotional and ethical shifts that come when somebody close to you is, becomes an addict. 
So um, Traffic tells a triptych of stories that shift in focus from a Mexican town to Washington to San Diego. And Soderbergh gets a, has a cast of 136 speaking parts. And the film stretches out for nearly like two and a half hours to tell the story of the political, um, economic and social impact of addiction with stories that focus on Michael Douglas's um, drug czar, um, who decides to take a hardline stance on drugs, but then whose daughter turns out to be a heroin addict. Um, Benicio Del Toro plays a Mexican policeman who discovers corruption is all around him when he's trying to do the right thing. And then there's the story of uh, San Diego and uh, the industry of, the, of, the, of the trafficking across the border there and the, and the way that that impacts on um, Catherine Zeta-Jones and her husband. Um, it also starts, has Miguel Ferrer, Don Cheadle, and even Viola Davis turns up in this film, which I didn't realise. Cool. Cliff Martinez's score, I think, is incredible and putting you inside the, the, te- the constant tension. There's also, Stoberg talked about trying to capture scenes rather than re- film them, and so there is this whole looseness and kind of crazy manic energy to the film, which I think really, really helps as well. And so all these um, tools are really kind of thrown together to explore this um, toll of addiction, which I think is portrayed really, really well. Uh, one person for the rest of your life, I mean, it's... I mean, you know, you come to restaurants, you see couples sitting together and they don't even speak to one another. They, they don't have anything to say, they don't have anything... They probably don't have to speak because they're connected. Or they're just bored with one another. Where you go? What's your longest relationship? Um, exactly. As you can pour. Four months. You have to commit. You have to actually give it a shot. I did. <laughs> For four months. <laughs> so my number one is an obvious and recent one in many respects, but it, it's a very good movie, I think. Uh, it's Steve McQueen's Shame. It's, it's a... It's such a good portrait of a highly functional addict, I think. So Michael Fassbender's mm-hmm. character is like this wealthy... Bank, or you know, you don't really get what he, he does. It's a, yeah, it's a white collar dude in Manhattan, and he goes to work every day. He socialises with his work buddies after uh, after work, uh, and it's just like it's just McQueen is so good at capturing the sort of monotony of his sex addiction and the scarily easy ways in which his upper middle class Manhattan social milieu just sort of enables it. Like, there's no resistance to it whatsoever. Like, he just. It's as if his, you know, economic and social status are such that it's just like there's yeah there's just no it's 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 almost impossible for him to sort of fight up against this um, this addiction that he has you know because everything around him is just working to um, keep it keep it going I guess so yeah it's very it's very uncomfortable and I I remember reading Roger Ebert's review at the time and he was like. This, this film's, you know, stunning and I will never watch it again. Yeah. And that's exactly how I feel about this film too. And the soundtrack is really unbearable too, but in a really intense, such a tense, uncomfortable film. Mm. What Vis- I visceral Yeah, what I think I think is thinking about it now and it's like, ugh. Fascinating about that is the... Um, they're like they're almost a palimpsest of that experience that's, um, that occurs with Carrie Mulligan's character turning up. Because, you know, he yep. has, represses everything. She externalises everything. She's yep. Um, yep. possibly borderline personality disorder. Yep. She's creative. She's, like, singing. She's doing all this sort of stuff. And they obviously they share some the same sort of dark experience, which is never really alluded to, that sent them on these paths. 
and it's just fascinating. It reminded me a bit of Mysterious Skin, of the Gregor Rocky film, which you know, where something's happened in the past. In that film, it's more obvious, but then everybody yep. individualizes it in these really interesting ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sure. you're kind of thrown into this upper class, you know, New York society, yep. and then yeah, like you were saying, it becomes this part of his personality that you never really see but you never can't really it's sort of yeah it's just like know. another part of his beautiful apartment you know I just think it's a wonderful wonderful portrait and wonderfully evocative of putting you into feeling something of the sensation of addiction I guess yeah yeah definitely yeah hello I'm James Mason I want to interest you in a new film that we've just finished at 20th Century Fox since this was my first assignment as a producer at a major studio I made sure that the story chosen contained all the ingredients that I like to find when I'm a member of the audience. I want excitement and entertainment in its broadest sense, but I also insist that the human issues involved are of the sort that might reasonably crop up in the everyday lives of all of us. Our story is based on just such an issue. It's about a drug, a drug which properly used can be a lifesaver but improperly used can be a life destroyer. Hardly a day goes by without new and shocking revelations in the nation's press about this drug. And now here it is, out in the open at last. A story of a handful of hope that became a fistful of hell. Um, Eloise, tell us your number one film about addiction. Okay, my number one is a 1956 Cinemascope picture called Bigger Than Life. Hmm. Um, Now, the Cinemascope is very important because even though it's a highly stylized Nicholas Ray film, I think it's deluxe colour and, you know, great blocking. um, So it's very theatrical, very cinematic. It's still, you know, super engaging. So this is about, this was, I feel like all of the films that maybe we're mentioning in this category, this was very controversial when it was released because it's about a man who basically destroys his life because he becomes addicted to the prescription drug cortisone. It's about James Mason, who plays a school teacher, who has some sort of trouble, headache or something, some sort of pain. And so he was prescribed cortisone and it begins to help but they, the medical people weren't aware that it's a steroid and that steroids are addictive and that steroids have all sorts of negative effects. He begins to lie. He begins to um, cheat, you know, kind of steal, go through all of these processes to, to get more steroids, basically. And he, um, he becomes violent. He abuses his wife and son. He begins to hate himself you know he goes through all of the 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 stages of of addiction and then self-realization and and eventually there is some cohesion at the end but basically it's just this really incredible film because it's kind of got a slow build-up and it's just about this man who you know who kind of loses control of his life because and you know it's not really his fault and so you can see it as this film about the risk the riskiness of of drugs, the riskiness of medical practice, and also, you know, about the detrimental effects of drug addiction. But at the same time, like all great 1950s melodramas, um, it's also, you know, a metaphor for the detrimental nature of patriarchy in society and suffocating blandness and life-destroying template of suburban America. So it's got, you know, a whole bunch of stuff going on, um, but it's Nicholas Ray, so it's masterful. Um, I think it was ba- it was based on a story, that a short story that was published 
around about that time um and so it kind of you know you can see it was it was a bit topical at the time mm. you know medical malpractice and all of this wow in compelling sounding film mm. yeah <laughs> um so my number one is a film which is one of the most celebrated studies of alcoholism in film history and I can't really think of another one that examines addiction that was more acclaimed or awarded as The Lost Weekend, Billy Wilder's film from 1945. So The Lost Weekend tells the story of four days in the life of Don Burnham, who's an alcoholic writer or failed writer, played by Ray Milland. Um, and he goes on a bender for the, over these four days. Uh, Jane Wyman plays his incredibly patient and forgiving girlfriend, Helen. And Doris Dowling plays Gloria, who's a barfly who has a... A soft spot for him that at first is difficult to understand is a, is a problem with a lot of these films. These women, women seem to have an extraordinary amount of patience um, mm. for, for somebody who's continually um, screws up. So with Wilder adapting and directing this, this amazing, glorious exchanges of dialogue that give uh, Milan's character all the charisma he needs to kind of over time make you understand why Helen and Doris find uh, him so interesting. Um, and he also gets completely amazing performances out of this pretty small cast. Um, about half the film is, is a story that Burnham is telling the bartender in flashback. So you can so and since he's a he's a writer and he's pretty much obsessed with his own experiences, he's really really good at explaining how he feels, which helps the audience kind of get into his shoes. So these conversations, I think, are part of the highlights of the film, and here is one now. Come on, Matt, join me one little jigger of dreams, huh? No thanks. You don't approve of drinking? Not the way you drink. It shrinks my liver, doesn't it, Matt? It pickles my kidneys, yes. But what does it do to my mind? It tosses the sandbags overboard so the balloon can soar. Suddenly I'm above the ordinary. I'm competent, supremely competent. I'm walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls. I'm one of the great ones. I'm Michelangelo molding the beard of Moses. I'm Van Gogh painting pure sunlight. I'm Horowitz playing the Emperor Concerto. I'm John Barrymore before the movies got him by the throat. I'm Jesse James and his two brothers, all three of them. I'm W. Shakespeare. And out there, it's not Third Avenue any longer, it's the Nile, Ned. The Nile, and down it to the barge of Cleopatra. Kimmy. Purple the sails, and soul perfumed that the winds will live sick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke. So I don't know if this is an accurate portrayal of an alcoholic, but um, all the elements uh, are here and they've been rendered with really, really great cinematic power. So there's a degradation of himself. He pushes away loved ones. He blames society for his own weaknesses. He ends up becoming having this split personality and talking about there being two Don Burnhams, the writer and then the, the drunk. But then the film is exclusively concerned with his addiction and it's kind of difficult his, to imagine. And his perspective as well. Yeah, right, yeah totally. So, yeah. yeah, so it does have that kind of excuse, I suppose. Um, but they're also, um, Wilder gets unusually um, theatrical, uh, over-the-top theatrical nightmarish scenes in a part where he's admitted to a uh, hospital for recovering alcoholics, and he has these delirium tremens ex- experiences that become very, almost Dali-ish, actually. In, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. In a scene with a bat and a mouse. Some of, those, some of those scenes, yeah, they're almost like a horror film. Mm, you know, yeah. They're extraordinary. Yeah, so I thought this was a really amazing film. And also, like Man with the Golden Arm, it kind of changed the way that Hollywood dealt with um, with addiction and a lot of things kind of became uh, a lot more normal afterwards, I suppose. So this film won four Academy Awards, I think, and was one of the only two that Wilder ever won, which is unusual because it's not really ever cited as one of his great films because there is so much mm. <laughs> amazing stuff that came before and after. But I thought for as far as the films about addiction go, I think The Lost Weekend kind of had to be in there somewhere. Yeah, I have two things to add to to your. I love this film so much. I adore it, and I, um, you know, I will 
you can't watch it too often because it's quite harrowing mm. but I yeah. you know will watch it quite frequently in the original novel the Don Burnham character was was basically an overt homosexual and that mm. was removed from the script um, adaptation um, I remember reading you know there was some criticism that that of Billy Wilder that he had somehow like solved alcoholism yeah, with this yeah. film and he said no I'm you know I was just I panned out of the window anything could happen after this he'd mm. just given up the bottle That's for true. the day yeah. you know he didn't he wasn't a, he wasn't cured he just um you know yeah it does it have a really kind of unusual thing, ending which actually. is nice mm. I mean I like that you know that, it, yeah. that it's not like this is four days in the life of a heavy alcoholic but you know now he's saved the other thing just mm. quickly I read that you know, Ray Milland actually went to a mental hospital mm. as an um, an outpatient maybe just to either Billy Wilder had said you know go and try and you know see what it's like to be here to, to you know you know method acting and all of that so he went to a mental hospital and he tried to leave and the people working oh at the hospital wouldn't let him I think oh or, or he no maybe that's incorrect he left but he was still wearing the gown or something and I think a policeman picked him up and brought him back to the hospital and he kept saying no no I'm just an actor but obviously <laughs> you know people who are in those mental institutions have yeah. you know are perceived, as, perceived as having delusions and so I think in the end he had to actually wing Billy Wilder and say <laughs> you know look I you know can you come and get me what yeah. a story <laughs> yeah 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 well what an unusually um, jaunty note to end this edition yeah. of Cultural Capital on after talking about addiction for so long Anders where can people find you online they can find me on Twitter I'm at Anders Furs you're back I am back yes Andy where can we find you online also at Twitter at Andy Ricky and you can find me online at Eloise Lowe Ross and you can find all of us at the cold cap pod or cultural capital um, on Twitter or cultural capital podcasts on Facebook um, thanks for making it to the end of cultural capital episode 20 see you next time see ya. Mm-hmm.